On July 26, 1953, Fidel Castro and his comrades attempted to seize the Moncada barracks, kicking off the Cuban Revolution. Seventy of his comrades ended up being killed, although Fidel Castro and some other leadership were caught. A few months later, he was put on trial, and on October 16th of 1953, he gave one of the 20th century's most famous speeches, History Will Absolve Me. The speech in its entirety was almost two hours long. What follows is merely a short excerpt of the ending. You will not be able to deny that the regime forced upon the nation is unworthy of Cuba's history. In his book, The Spirit of Laws, which is the foundation of the modern division of governmental power, Montesquieu makes a distinction between three types of government according to their basic nature. The republican form, wherein the whole people or a portion thereof has sovereign power. The monarchical form, where only one man governs, but in accordance with fixed and well-defined laws. And the despotic form, where one man, without regard for laws nor rules, acts as he pleases, regarding only his will or whim. And then he adds, a man whose five senses constantly tell him that he is everything and that the rest of humanity is nothing is bound to be lazy, ignorant, and sensuous. A virtue is necessary to democracy and honor to a monarchy. Fear is the essence of a despotic regime where virtue is not needed and honor would be dangerous. The right of rebellion against tyranny, honorable judges, has been recognized from the most ancient times to the present day by men of all creeds, ideas, and doctrines. It was so in the theocratic monarchies of remote antiquity. In China, it was almost a constitutional principle that when a king governed rudely and despotically, he should be deposed and replaced by a virtuous prince. The philosophers of ancient India upheld the principle of active resistance to arbitrary authority. They justified revolution and very often put their theories into practice. One of their spiritual leaders used to say that an opinion held by the majority is stronger than the king himself. A rope woven of many strands is strong enough to hold a lion. The city-states of Greece and Republican Rome not only admitted, but defended the metting out of violent death to tyrants. In the Middle Ages, John Salisbury in his book of the Statesman says that when a prince does not govern according to law and degenerates into a tyrant, violent overthrow is legitimate and justifiable. He recommends for tyrants the dagger rather than the poison. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica rejects the doctrine of tyrannicide and yet upholds the thesis that tyrants should be overthrown by the people. Martin Luther proclaimed that when a government degenerates into tyranny that violates the law, its subjects are released from the obligations to obey. His disciple, uh, Philip uh, Melanchthon, upholds the right of resistance when governments become despotic. Calvin, the outside thinker of reformation with regard to political ideas, postulates that people are entitled to take up arms to oppose any usurpa usurpation. No less a man than Juan Mariano, a Spanish Jesuit during the reign of Philip II, asserts in his book, uh, De Regia et Regis Institutio, that when a governor usurps power, or even if he were elected, when he governs in a tyrannical manner, it is illicit for a private citizen to exercise tyrannicide, either directly or through subterfuge, and the least possible disturbance. The French writer, Francois Hotman, maintained that between the government and its subjects, there is a bond or contract, and that the people may rise in rebellion against the tyranny of government when the latter violates the pact. About the same time, a booklet, which came to be widely read, appeared under the uh, Vindicate Contra Tyrannos, and it was signed with the pseudo Stephanus Junius Brutus. It openly declared that resistance to governments is legitimate when rulers oppress the people and that it is the duty of honorable judges to lead the struggle. 
The Scottish reformers, John Knox and John Poinette, upheld that the same points of view. And in the most important book of that government, George Buchanan stated that if a government achieved power without taking into account the consent of people, or if a government rules their destiny in an unjust or arbitrary fashion, then that government becomes a tyranny and can be divested of power, or in a final recourse, its leaders can be put to death. John Althus, a German uh, jurist of the 17th century, stated in the treatise on politics that sovereignty is the supreme authority of the state is born from the voluntary concourse of all its members. That governmental authority stems from the people and that it is unjust, illegal, or tyrannical function exempts them from the duty of obedience and justifies resistance or rebellion. Thus far, honorable judges, I've mentioned examples from antiquity, from the Middle Ages, and from the beginning of our times. I selected these examples from writers of all creeds. What is more, you can see that the right of rebellion is at the very root of Cuba's existence as a nation. By virtue of it, you are able today to appear in the robes of Cuban judges. Would it be that those garments really serve the cause of justice? It is well known that in England during the 17th century, two kings, Charles I and James II, were dethroned for despotism. These actions coincided with the birth of liberal political philosophy and provided the ideological base for a new social class, which was then struggling to break the bonds of feudalism. Against divine right autocracies, this new philosophy upheld the principle of the social contract and of the consent of the governed, and constituted the foundation of the English Revolution of 1688, the American Revolution of 1775, and the French Revolution of 1789. These great revolutionary events ushered in the liberation of the Spanish colonies in the New World, the final link in that chain being broken by Cuba. The new philosophy nurtured our own political ideas and helped us evolve our constitutions, from the Constitution of Guillermo up to the Constitution of 1940. The latter was influenced by the socialist currents of our time. The principle of the social function of property and of man's inalienable right to a decent living were built into it, although large and vested interests have prevented fully enforcing those rights. The right of insurrection against tyranny when underwent its final consecration and became a fundamental tenet of political liberty. As far back as 19, uh, 1649, John Milton wrote that political power lies with the people who could enthrone and dethrone kings and have the duty of overthrowing tyrants. John Locke, in his essay on government, maintained that when the natural rights of man are violated, the people have the right and duty to alter or abolish the government. The only remedy against unauthorized force is opposition to it by force. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said the great eloquence in a social contract, where a people sees itself forced to obey and obeys, it does well, but as soon as it can shake off the yoke and shakes it off, it does better, recovering its liberty through the use of very right that has been taken away from it. The strongest man is never strong enough to be master forever unless he converts force into right and obedience into duty. Force is a physical power. I do not see that mor what morality one may derive from its use. To yield to force is an act of necessity, not of will. At the very least, it is an act of prudence. In what sense should this be called a duty? To renounce freedom, it is to renounce one's status as a man, to renounce one's human rights, including one's duties. There is no possible compensation for renouncing everything. Total renunciation is incompatible with the nature of man, and to take away all free will is to take away all morality of conduct. In short, it is vain and contradictory to stipulate on one hand an absolute authority and on the other an unlimited obedience. Thomas Paine said that one just man deserves more respect than a rogue with a crown. The people's right to rebel has been opposed only by reactionaries like that clergyman of Virginia, Jonathan Boucher, who said the right to rebel is a censorable doctrine derived from Lucifer, the father of rebellions.
The Declaration of Independence of the Congress of Philadelphia on July 4th, 1776 consecrated this right in a beautiful paragraph which reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. The famous Declaration of the Rights of Man willed this principle to the coming generations. When the government violates the right of the people, insurrection is for them the most sacred of rights and the most imperative of duties. When a person sees a sovereignty, he should be condemned to death by free men. I believe I have sufficiently justified my point of view. I have called forth more reasons than the honorable prosecutor called forth to ask that I be condemned to 26 years in prison. All these reasons support men who struggle for the freedom and happiness of the people. None support those who oppress the people, revile them, and rob them heartlessly. Therefore, I have been able to call forth many reasons, and he could not abduce even one. How can Batista's presence and power be justified when he gained it against the will of the people and by violating the laws of the Republic through the use of treachery and force? How can anyone call legitimate a regime of blood, oppression, ignorance? How could anyone call revolution a regime which has gathered the most backward men, methods, and ideas of public life around it? How can anyone consider legally valid the high treason of a court whose duty has to defend the Constitution? With what right do the courts send to prison citizens who have tried to redeem their country by giving their own blood, their own lives? All this is monstrous to the eyes of the nation and to the principles of true justice. Still, there's one argument more powerful than all others. We're Cubans, and to be Cuban implies a duty. Not to fulfill that duty as a crime is treason. We're proud of the history of our country. We learned it in school and have grown up hearing of freedom, justice, and human rights. We were taught to venerate the glorious example of our heroes and martyrs. Cespedes, Agramante, Maceo, Gomez, Marti were the first names engraved in our minds. We were taught that the Titan once said that liberty is not begged for, but won with the blade of a machete. We are taught that for the guidance of Cuba's free citizens, the apostle wrote in his book, The Golden Age. The man who abides by unjust laws and permits any man to trample and mistreat the country in which he was born is not an honorable man. In the words, there must be a certain degree of honor, just as there must be a certain amount of light. When there are many men without honor, there are always others who bear in themselves the honor of many men. These are the men who rebel with great force against those who steal the people's freedom, that is to say, against those who steal honor itself. In those men, thousands more are contained, an entire people is contained, human dignity is contained. We were taught that the 10th of October and the 24th of February are glorious anniversaries of national rejoicing because they mark the days on which Cubans rebelled against the yoke of the infamous tyranny. We were taught to cherish and defend the beloved flag of the Lone Star and to sing every afternoon the verses of our national anthem. To live in change is to live in disgrace and in uh, opprobrium, and to die for one's homeland is to live forever. All this we learned and will never forget, even though today in our land there is murder and prison for the men who practice the ideas taught to them since they were in the cradle. We were born in a free country that our parents bequeathed to us, and the island will sink into the sea before we consent to be slaves of anyone. It seems that the apostle would die during his centennial. It seemed that his memory would be extinguished forever. So great was the affront, but he is alive. He's not dead. His people are rebellious. His people are worthy. His people are faithful to his memory. 
There are Cubans who have followed defending his doctrines. There are young men who in magnificent selflessness came to die beside his tomb, giving their blood and their lives so that he could keep on living in the heart of his nation. Cuba, what would have become of you had you let your apostle die? I come to the close of my defense plea, but I will not end it as lawyers usually do, asking that the accused be freed. I can't ask for freedom myself while my comrades are already suffering in prison on the Isle of Pines. Send me there to join them and share their fate. It's understandable that honest men should be dead or in prison or in a republic where the president is a criminal and a thief. To you, honorable judges, my sincere gratitude for having allowed me to express myself free from contemptible restrictions. I hold no bitterness towards you. I recognize that in certain aspects you've been, in, you've been humane. And I know that the chief judge of this court, a man of impeccable private life, cannot disguise his repugnance at the current state of affairs that compels him to dictate unjust decisions. Still, a more serious problem remains for the Court of Appeals. The indictments arising from the murders of 70 men, that is to say, the greatest massacre we have ever known. The guilty continue at liberty and with weapons in their hands, weapons which continually threaten the lives of all citizens. If all the weight of the law does not fall upon the guilty because of cowardice or because of domination of the courts, and if then all the judges do not resign, I pity your honor, and I regret the unprecedented shame that will fall upon the judicial power. I know that imprisonment will be harder for me than it has ever been for anyone, filled with coward, cowardly threats and hideous cruelty. But I don't fear prison. I don't fear the fury of the miserable tyrant who took the lives of 70 of my com comrades. Condemn them. It doesn't matter. History will absolve me.